Brooklyn Emerging Voices Fellowship is a literary mentorship that provides new writers the tools to launch a professional writing career. Emerging Voices is the most amazing program that allows the writers to develop. It's the opportunity to have my work in the world, to get to the truth of my writing, to know that what I'm writing matters. Whatever, because remember the faces I give you yeah. guys whenever you guys are like, come and see us in LA. Oh yeah. God, I'm yeah. always like, no, yeah. you guys can come you see can, us you too. You come out to Long Beach. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, hey guys, uh, welcome back. We are here, uh, podcast 006 with Douglas Manuel. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me, my friend. Thank you for coming to sit in my brand new, amazingly giant bedroom in Long Beach. It I is. I really appreciate it. It's pretty much the biggest bedroom in Long Beach right now. I'm right? 100% and sure. And you, do you hear the, um, if you hear the chimes, the wind chimes, it's very beachy. Yes. No, I did. I very, did. very beachy. No. And the breeze. The breeze. can totally see the palm trees moving. Yeah. This is quite the visual. So if you guys hear that, it's on purpose. I didn't do I didn't close the windows on purpose. <laughs> so Doug, you were twenty eighteen our twenty eighteen poet Juby Ariola Headley, you were his mentor this year. Um, yep. you were born in Indiana. You got your BA at school in Arizona, you mm. went back to Indiana for graduate school at Butler, yep. and now you're at USC, you're a Middleton and Dornside Fellow, and you're getting your PhD in literature and creative writing. All these are facts. So you are like one of the most academic people that I know in my life. That's so strange, but it has become a true statement. Right? <laughs> but also, I would I would say, I think I can say this because I think this about myself, you're a little streak. <laughs> yes, you know, yes, yes. Yeah, I, in the background. I got a little edge. I got, well, what I like to say is um, most of my street cred comes from my family more so than me. But like because of my family, like my name goes a little bit hard. Like uh, it's funny, like people will say, oh, yeah, that's Big Doug's son or, or, or hey, that's Troy little brother. So um, uh, do you still get that you mean when you go home to Indiana? Oh, oh yes. Yeah. Yes. All the time. All the time. Um, yeah. I have a poem like on my father's name because like I feel as though, you know, like in the Midwest, it's really hard for me to step outside of that identity. Um, that's one of the reasons why I've been so many other places right. and haven't lived in yeah, Indiana totally. very long. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, no, the shadow of my father and my um, brother and just, um, yeah, what they are known for in the in the streets of Anderson is uh, looms over me very heavy and, you know, colors my writing and colors my living experience very much so. Right. Well, why don't you tell us, you know, we all have a different path to the creative arts and I think that's the cool thing about Emerging Voices because we, we get people from all over and all backgrounds. So tell us about your path to to, be, to poetry. Being a writer. So from like forever. First you were born. Yes. So on the day you were born. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I, well, the reason I joke with that is I think it was like Jane Hirschfield, like uh, somebody asked her, you know, when did you start being a poet? And this is like a famous uh, retort now. Everybody talks about it. Uh, they asked her, when, when did you start being a poet? And she looks out through the crowd and she goes, when did you stop? Uh, so that's always one of the ones I use now. Like Throw I feel, it back at me. Yeah, no, yeah. doesn't it feel great? Um, but then at the same time, like to be uh, candid with you. So um, I think I had always journaled. And then when I was little, like we're talking like eight and stuff, like even around the time when my mom died, I used to say stuff like, um, I'm going to be an Arthur. And then people like, oh, like you like knights, like King Arthur. And, right. and then I'd be like, no, I'm going to write books. 
So, uh, that, 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 yeah, like when I'm little Dougie with glasses and I look like Steve Urkel. Mm -hmm. So, uh, that, that, that has been a long time, uh, coming. And then like, you know, in middle school and stuff, like I was always like writing in a journal and, um, because of, you know, being who I am and being part of that first generation that had hip hop their whole life, you know, pretty much like kind of oral expression, like the pathway was being a rapper. And, you know, my brother was all into the Afrocentristic and kind of, uh, hip-hop at its origin, the conscious rap, uh, you know, Tribe Called Quest, Wu-Tang and stuff, like, my brother would come home and, you know, be like, Lil Doug, you need to be listening to this, this is what's gonna give you that knowledge, Lil Doug, um, so, um, I always tell so people... So those were your first poets, basically? Uh, yeah, no, I, I think so, um, those were definitely the, um, it was the first time that I seen language that was my language, or her language, that was my, uh, like, language that I was familiar with, but also masterful artful and like impactful and like was talking about stuff that like I could resonate with you know it wasn't just like the scary goosebump stories that I was reading in elementary school like I remember that was beast at those little goosebumps and yeah, fear yeah. streets we, yeah. we read yeah. those so much how much uh, older than you is your brother uh, 12 years okay yeah so like my brother and I have that relationship to where like pretty much I wanted to be him like most of my life right. like, like that like that he was like an, I only know him as a full adult you know he's 12 when I'm born yeah um, so yeah and so he ends up like everything that he thinks is cool I think it's right. cool and I want to be and I yeah. want him to think I'm cool so yeah I went from that and then like a, a group of us in the little honors classes in middle school and high school would, uh, I think they were geo city sites do you remember those whips websites back in the day like kind of per like they'd be the the preview of what Facebook could be the, okay. these little personal web pages that yeah, you yeah, could yeah. create on these little sites and you know I post these horrible poems up on them you know um, horrible in that sentimental and hard rhymes my friend hard rhymes like you gotta know the power of a way and yeah. day <laughs> 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 you know those kind of rhymes like you know it was great it was great um but yeah no uh, i love the mournful siren in the background too so it's like we have a soundtrack to little yeah, right no, so, <laughs> hey, whatever little white girl had broken my heart at the time, that's who that's who it was and Bitches. i yeah they say tripping right <laughs> uh no actually it was always me who was problematic to be candid um, but yeah, no, so like it, it evolved uh, from there. And then like it was something that I kind of kept on the burner, if you will. Yeah. Um, that wasn't the most important thing in my life, but just like something that I would check in with. Like I always had a journal and I always felt this real need. And I think this is part of being of the, I always say it's weird. Uh, I'm like an elder millennial, but being part of the, being millennial is this, I think, because of like shows like the wonder years, like of like having the kind of narration happening in right. your head to like the whole and I think everybody kind of of course thinks that this they're a star of a movie but I think for people of our generation with the way TV was like we especially kind of have this like narr uh, third person omniscient narrator who's like playing everything in our head yeah. so that was always kind of what I was trying to capture and I used to try to write these little novels like called like the gang about like me and my friends and stuff okay. like I was like trying to do that kind of stuff all the time and we're talking like middle class what was your neighborhood like? Oh, uh, so, I mean, like, Anderson's an a, a interesting place. Um, so, pretty much the west side of Anderson is just historically black and very much so, like, all the wealth came from the factories. Okay. Um, and so, it's, if you went there, if we went there now, you'd be like, Shh, shit, it's gully, right? It's, right. Um, like, people are doing hand-to-hand -hand still, like, the murder rate is insane, highest teen pregnancy rate, highest uh, college dropout rate in in Indiana, like, yeah. in the, like, top five every year, Anderson, Indiana. But then, 
there's the east side of town where the affluent white people live, more of the suburbs. And most of these people are the professionals of the community, right? These are the people who are doctors and lawyers who are business owners. And so they live in the outskirts of town. Some of them may work in Indianapolis, which is about 60 miles away. Okay. Um, and so it's way cheaper to buy homes in Anderson than in Indy. Right. So they do there. So you have this real kind of wealth gap. And these people have a different connection to the community because it's not the factories, right? So they weren't as hurt by uh, globalization, NAFTA. Um, so and well, you're, were you in school with their kids? Yep, yeah, that's, that's where I'm going. That's where I'm going. So pretty much what ends up happening, like we're one of the historic, the coal sides, my mom's side is one of the historic cap, black Catholic families in town. So St. Mary's ends up being really kind of nice to us as a family. And I think let me go to school like after my mom passed for... I think some kind of discounted rate, something that made it affordable, or at least showed some kind of love. So, like, pretty much... So, like I, private school? Yeah. Okay. So, in elementary school, I'm, I'm going to Catholic school. Yeah. Um, it, it meant a lot that my mom, uh, she, um, I think she got confirmed right before she died, because she had already been baptized, I think, and did her first communion. So, like, she really got back into the faith, and, like, that. that's where I, you know, my godmother, I meet my godmother, who ends up being instrumental in my life, and kind of... So a lot of times, like, I'd be at my godmother's almost the whole weekend, and she lived in Pendleton, this, like, all-white kind of suburb, very all-white suburb. So it made, that made me a double kid. And then in, like, sixth grade, I decided to go to um, the public school for the first time, and that's a really big deal. Um, and uh, it, was, well, it, was a, it was a joke because, like, it, it was just so much easier. But, like, I oh, wanted to do it for sports because uh, okay. I was playing basketball at the time, like everybody else in Indiana, uh, thinking right. uh, NBA dreams. <laughs> it's like Hoosier's time. Yeah, no, t- <laughs> thousands. So pretty much, like, it goes from me, like, thinking that I'm going to be, you know, like, this famous rapper, rapper. T- to me, like, thinking I'm going to the NBA with all five nine of my length. Like, yeah. don't I look like I can dunk Absolutely. on you right now? Yes, you're right. I think about that whenever I see you. I'm like, oh, why isn't he a basketball Yeah, player? he should be in the NBA. <laughs> I'm surprised he's not on the Lakers. That's what you think, right? Totally. Uh, yeah, no, never. So, oh, uh, yeah. You wear, like, the safety glasses. Oh, girl, you're already there. Yes. Oh, you're the best person for knowing (laughs) that. Oh, and I had, like, the, we call him the Horace Grants. He was on the Bulls, this guy who wore goggles. Like, I had to wear the goggles. You had to wear the goggles? And Aww. it was the biggest fight with me and my auntie when I wanted to get contacts because she didn't think I was responsible enough. So I saved up my lunch money to buy my own contacts. And, it, and my dad took me, and my aunt and my dad were always, because my aunt had custody over me, and so my aunt and my dad always were beefing. And pretty much, and because I was a piece of shit about it, right? Like, whenever, like, my, my aunt would say now, I'd be like, oh, it's my dad. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, I was stirring the pot, yeah, you know? Yeah, I was yeah, stirring yeah. the pot. So, did uh, you get the hard, hard contacts? Yes, that, yes. Like, you yeah. step on. And, and, like, yeah. Yeah. and, of course, like, now, like, I, I wear contacts very, very not, well, not often, I guess is what I'll say. And it's because my eye doctor, I think, like, what, about three years back when I went, he was like, have a lot of scar scarization on it because I I would wear my contacts too long they were too they were crappy. So your aunt was totally right. Times a thousand. Yeah. I was not responsible you were not enough. Ready for contacts. <laughs> yes. Okay. Sorry, I keep interrupting. So no, we're in high okay. school. No, uh, you're in the sixth grade and you go to public oh, school. So they, they so they draw the lines, the districts. So like pretty much if they didn't uh, draw lines, it's in like the ur- <laughs> quote unquote urban kids. <laughs> it's funny when people say that black. Brown, might as well say it, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, so they wanted the races to be even, so they drew the lines to where like some uh, a patch of the west side went to the 
what they called the white high school, what we call the white school of Highland okay. at the time. And now there's only one high school because that's how bad the town has like been suffering from yeah, everything. Yeah. Pretty much like Anderson is like Flint without dirty water. Okay. Like the history of Flint and the history of Anderson. Like I think even like the when I did some research, like the unemployment rate like is like the same and like the like crazy hit hard by the opiate ed- epidemic. Uh, oh yeah, the yeah. the meth epidemic. An- well, okay. Wow, Anderson. There's so many places oh, we can go. There's so many places we go. I love all this because it's like juxtaposing like where you're at now. Like, you know, getting your PhD in California. <laughs> Girl, it's you, like... You ain't lying one okay, bit. Um, really quickly with that, I mean, like, the crap e- epidemic, like, hit, like, in, like, probably, like, I would say the... Uh, early 90s it, didn't, okay. it was where it hit really hard so that's the thing that kind of colors colors my life the most um when i was uh going uh leaving for like my first college like it was just now kind of like the rise of like uh through the elder people of selling like pharmaceutical pills that was just starting to happen like yeah. i remember homies were like you know what i'm saying we gotta move them ills now you know what i'm saying uh, so that was it, and then like then like some of the ramblings of, of meth came, but it really meth didn't really stick to Anderson from what I seen. But again, I wasn't living there at the time, like and and it always felt a little bit white for what like um, um, the people who I knew who were trafficking in those kind of areas, if you will, I yeah. guess pun in tech, in, intended with yeah. trafficking. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so then, but now, like, it's totally the opium epidemic. And still crack, it's weird, you know, like, when I, <laughs> I think it was, like, like, the Migos has a rhyme that, like, you know, crack is still is still going. Like, it's weird to me, the the, the whole, the, the crack, I, I think maybe because of rap, even though that's a, that's a, a statement that I could walk back and kind of problematize. But yeah, it's weird to me how much the crack game still exists and how um, powerful crack is in... The kind of black imagination in, in in communities like Anderson, like like it still goes hard. Like it's it's strange because some people like think about like crack being like so dead and gone, yeah. you know, like that it's either going to be meth or the pills or the opium, uh, op- opioids. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no. Um, at least from what I can gather, it still matters. But uh, yeah, so pretty much because of redistricting lines, I end up going to the white uh, high school, which again because of my kind of white socialization from going to the predominantly white Catholic school was never problematic. I was always a double kid. I was always, like I said, dating white girls and, you know, my aunt, like, getting in trouble with my aunt about that, you know, um, and also from their families, too, like, uh, there's a story, there might be a story about an eighth grade Doug getting caught in a white girl's closet at, like, two in the morning by her parents. Oh. That story might exist. That, oh. that, that story might exist, and his aunt might have had to come get him at, like, two in the morning. From a closet. Not cool. Yeah. Not, like that situation makes me scared for yeah. eighth grade Doug. Yeah. No. Closet. Well, like his aunt said, you know, he that that white man could have killed you, and he literally could have. Yeah. Because they no, they didn't want me there. Yeah. Hence why I was sneaking to her house at two in the morning, right? Right. But yeah, so I guess uh, to get back to to the whole writing story again, you said this. You and I are gonna be able to talk about totally. forever. Yeah. It's um, all over the place. Yeah, but to get back to the writing story, I guess, um, so all through high school, uh, I have this, I have a creative writing teacher named Mrs. Branham, and I've actually tried to find her and haven't been able to my whole life. I'd really like to know what happened to her. Stephanie Branham. Stephanie Branham. Should yeah. I try to do a Facebook search since uh, you're not on a Facebook? Yeah, I'm not on, that's another whole thing. Yeah. Uh, no, I should, I, I would love that, actually. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, and so, like, I, I did a lot of, jer- uh, you know, she had to journal, uh, had us journal every day, and I remember that was when I kind of 
came back to writing in a way and thought to myself, oh man, like writing is really cool, even though I was like knee deep in being an athlete at that time. I really came back to it. So yeah, then college uh, comes along. I mess up at institution, Wabash College in Indiana. It was a horrible well, was place. Was it for... weird for you to go to college? Like I know for me, I was the first one in my family to go to college. So like, were all your friends going to college? Like, was because I had like all the white because I had all the white boy friends. Okay. So yeah, it was natural to me, but it wasn't natural for my family. Yeah. And then also, I'm kind of the person who, after my brother went to prison and stuff, when he was at college, because he was the first person, you know, like who got to fulfill that that dream okay so he did go to college yeah he he didn't yeah he didn't graduate yeah Yeah, he actually yeah got in trouble and did his bid when he was there in north uh folk state but yeah so i was the person whose everybody's dreams was invested in so it was kind of it was natural like that's what dougie was supposed to do dougie had always got all a's yeah dougie always got all a's dougie graduated what i think it was like fifth in his class for high school like everybody knew like i was supposed to I'm supposed to do amazing things. Yeah, yeah. That's why when I started doing bad things, why it was so, such a big letdown to not only my family but to me as well. Because like so much pressure though. Like, did you start doing bad things because it was just like, all of your all the hopes and dreams are like on your shoulders. That's I'm, a big weight to carry. I mean, like Freud says, you know, with overdetermination, like it's overdetermined. Like there's not one single factor, but that's definitely a big one. Uh, a lot of the trauma of like my ma and. Um, and, like, we talk about this all the time, like, you know, we're just now starting to talk about this as a society, but just all the trauma that young black kids uh, carry yeah. in general, you know, like, Kay and I were joking uh, the other day, you know, we were talking about, like, how medicated our um, our students are now, and I was like, man, like, if, like, we gave proper medication that, like, all the kids in the hood, like, literally every black kid would be on, like, all these kind of things yeah. just for trauma, you know, just the way we're treating people. I don't know if that's a good thing, like, if we should be treating people as much as we're treating people, like, with pharmaceutical, phar- pharmaceuticals like we are with, like, you know, the privileged stu- uh, privileged kids. Um, but, like, I was just, yeah, the trauma just is so untreated. So I think it was that, and I think it was also kind of trying to figure out, and this is what my writing ends up being about, about, like, what kind of black dude am I and what to do with, like, the... Um, the, what the kind of black identity I inherited, like ideas of black masculinity and like what I was and then also what I aspired to be. And like those three kind of pools of me trying to figure out how I fit into that. Uh, I think that was a lot, too, of like my relationship to blackness. Um, I had a lot of easy thinking of, you know, like almost like to the, the, the thoughts of OJ, you know, like, you know, that I'm not black, I'm OJ, like where I thought that like white people didn't look at me the same way they looked at other like the uh that they looked at other black people yeah. um like the, even the example with the getting caught at the girl's house you know like her mom had told me like on the phone and my auntie got on the phone and checked her because i can't know how i don't know how the situation happened and my aunt was like got to hear it but oh melissa's mom <laughs> probably shouldn't say her name uh but uh <laughs> but asked uh but asked to um to talk to me because she got on the phone hearing uh, us talk and she was like I don't think your uh, your your uh, son is good enough for my daughter and I don't want him calling anymore so I knew it but then you know I still thought because like you know she liked me and all the friends liked me that like you know that like it wasn't that bad like you I was were, such like, insulated in some way yeah, yeah I was such an apologist for right racism when I was young like yeah. so often you know um, and I guess like again that becomes one of the things that I end up wrestling with like throughout my first book you know um but so going to college i guess to get back on track going to college was like just something that was i was 
I had become like you know now I tell my my cousin uh, that his uh, that he has white people problems with his kids because you know they've gone to college and like they they have things that happen that like happen to affluent white people those yeah. kind of problems yeah. you know and so I'm like, like so like it was one of those things where I kind of had like a, a white people uh, what around my hood we consider like white people stuff that like of course Dougie's like deciding what colleges to go to right. like that's like what he's going to be doing right. you know and so even though it was outside of what the jam that many people were doing who were like around the way it was still like supposed to be my jam so it yeah. wasn't that odd that yeah. at least that part of it but I mean it was still a big deal and it, it meant a lot to everybody you know and again that's why when I started doing so poorly at Wabash that I was just like I'm not going back to Anderson and like uh, you know there's no way with you know that many hopes invested in me that I was going to go back home with my tail between my legs right. you know what I yeah. mean like there was just no way so my cousin was moving out to Arizona and I was just like yo can I roll with you and he's now said that he knew that I was running away from something so he just was like yeah and um, it's so interesting that whole idea of like your pr- I feel like pride does save us sometimes every now and again <laughs> honestly like similar to me I was just like I'm not going home to Canada unless I'm fucking dead like yeah. I'm gonna have to be in a body bag and there's just no way and it was like I no matter what it's gonna work and yep. it's like you don't know how it's gonna work but you're gonna make it work no you're so right you know and I think that that's you, you very rarely like you said very rarely it does save us but sometimes mm-hmm. it does no I know? agree um, well, my thing is, I, I, I used to tell people, even when I was, like, really down and out in Arizona, like, almost, like, homeless a couple times because of just bad decisions I made. And, again, I, 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 there's no reason for me to ever be homeless, like, because of the family I have. Somebody would always take me in, but I, I would always tell people I'd rather be on the streets right. than go back to Anderson, Indiana. Right. Like, I would rather, oh, yeah. like, like yeah. literally. Yeah. Like, so I totally, totally feel you. Yeah. Um, and at... And, you know, ASU, you know. Um, so you transferred from Wabash to ASU, or uh, you just yeah. went out to Arizona? And I went out to Arizona okay. and, like, spun wheels, like, in the community college scene for a second and, like, had a couple, like, that's where I ended up meeting, like, Sarah Vapp, you know, who ends up being a me- meaningful mentor for me. I end up going to the PhD program, and she's in it, Ooh, you okay. know? Yeah, yeah, she's very meaningful for my life, Sarah Vapp, like, beautiful poet, essayist, anything you want, thinker, she's just lovely, has, like, so, like, She's one of the first people, and, like, I was uh, writing fiction at the time. Uh, I took a creative writing class, and, like, um, she ended up, like, you know, indirectly, she wasn't trying to, but converting me to poetry, like, you know. Um, um, and as she tells it, I was writing, like, you know, wannabe, like, kind of Afrofuturism right back then. I was trying to write these, like, kind of sci-fi stories. Um, yeah, I mean, it was... I don't really recall it very much. She remembers more of it, but yeah, it was it was it was, it was interesting time, and, and I was like working for a nonprofit at the time, uh, Acorn, trying to make it, uh, trying yeah, trying to trying to you know I, I used to say things like back then like you know I want to do the least amount of harm in the world. I just want to do something that you know like you know I had all the pipe dreams that I hear my undergrads say now. Just right. like when you think that like when you have a totally different relationship with like reality in the world than like post 30 brings to your life but I also feel like when you have that kind of trauma in your life and you grow up that way it's like you you either go the totally opposite direction and you end up wanting to like hurt people or you want to do the least amount of harm because it's like there's no middle ground for people that have that kind of trauma you ain't lying no I agree with that and I also like I was really, at that time, just trying to find a life that I felt like that I could live and not feel guilty. Like, Catholicism, I've realized, has really worked on me really hard as far as, like, not only just because, you know, of all the ways that, you know, um, 
I punish myself, but just like um, I, I think a lot about my connection to what happens to people. And I thought at the time that, you know, like that I was really trying to change the world. I really thought, you know, like I think it was the Kerry campaign was the first campaign I worked for. And I mean, my goodness, Amanda, I was so hurt. Kerry lost. Right. Like, I remember that. Like, oh, I mean, it's just so funny thinking about what we deal with right now with the 45th. I just remember, like, I was trying. You had no idea how bad it could Yeah, happen. no, I, I try to tell my students all the time about, like, because, like, now we kind of have amnesia about it because, like, the 45th is so bad. But I tell my students all the time, like, I was, like, doing marches and doing things like this against the Bush years, like, so hardcore. Like, the Bush years were insane for me. And, like, that was, like, my maturation period. Like, you know, that's where, like, satirical news, like, gets its heyday. Like, like all these kind of things, you know, like, even though we try to act like this is so abnormal right now, all this was kind of previewed in the Bush years, to be honest. Um, I don't really like the narrative. Like, I'm always telling my students that the stories we tell ourselves are more important than what happened. And I don't really like the narrative of how we've kind of let off the gas about um, the Bush years. Like, I mean, between all the wars, and I mean, like, you know, Obama reminded us recently, I mean, when he came into office, we were losing, what was it, 800,000 jobs a month? Mm-hmm. 10 years ago, right. we were losing, right. eight, like, that number's insane. Like, Anderson, my hometown currently is only like 50,000 people. Yeah. And so to hear out loud, the United States was losing. 800,000 jobs a month like and so like all that's just a a, month yeah it's just insane so yeah that's how bad things were with with Bush so like I was just trying to keep that in perspective about but that's when I was coming to age you know so that that really you know I had dreads to like really long dreads you know and like I was like you know hanging out in anarchist libraries in Phoenix trying to like feel like I was trying to change the world you know that that was the first time when we really start thinking about like Phoenix as being like a purple state that we could again the large you know like Latino and Latinx community there, you know, still, you know, it's still on the map like that. But that was kind of the burgeoning of that. And I was a little part of that, a little bit in the nonprofit scene that I was associated with. And so, yeah, I was just kind of at the JUCO kind of writing off. And then when I finally get to ASU, you know, I've run into a mentor, Bob Haynes, who ends up, you know, pretty much like asking me if I'm willing to send him poems once a week, you know, because he's really liking the stuff from workshop. And you know, so then like once a week, you know, I'm going, I send him poems, I'm going into class with him and he's giving me line edits, talking to me about prosody, talking to me about craft. And like, I remember I just used to always tell him, I just want to get to the stage where I could do this without you. And like feeling like that that was like impossible because, you know, I'd give him a poem, excuse me, there wasn't really a poem. And then like he would, you know, do these different line breaks, say started here, say uh, you overwrote, end it earlier, uh, switch up these stanzas this needs more energy like what if you delayed a subject uh, all these things you know all these tactics you know just come to my brain quickly now and I just remember just thinking it was just like it's so just like amorphous thing that yeah. makes no sense and, and that he's a genius yeah. and he just yeah, puts right, his right, he right, puts right. his brain on yeah. it and then suddenly the, like this amorphous thing that makes no sense that I handed him to is like this tight dope yeah. thing and I'd be like whoa it was just like magic you know yeah. it was so enchanting and you hadn't taken any formal like structure classes poetry Um, that was the first one and then he swooped me up and then like you know then suddenly like my i'm getting poems in the little you know the maroon and i can't remember the name of the other little journal at asu the undergrad journal um and yeah it was just like one of those things to where like i hadn't been applauded for my academics (laughs) in so long and it was like i forgot how much how cool it felt yeah to feel like the smart kid 
because that was one of my identities you know i was i was this smart athlete like i was in honors classes but like you know i, I like ran track and played basketball right. and so that was like my because like after i hurt my knee in high school like i basketball i quit because like i came back and i wasn't as good so like you know it felt whack but then i ran track and i was good at track so like that was kind of my thing but my whole life my starting from when i first went to public school and being in honors classes my identity was as i was a smart black dude that yeah. was like the identity so i hadn't had that praise like now saying it out loud i actually didn't i kind of found that right now um yeah that it meant a lot to me to like be academically praised again and so you know the rest is history you know i, I end up being a creative writing major i'm a fiction writer i'm like writing these stories usually the same story over poetry kind of lightly <laughs> but usually the same story all the time there's this black dude he likes white girls and weird things happen when he hangs out with his white friends mm -hmm. in different ways right, right. over and over yeah, again because yeah. that's what was happening to yeah. me <laughs> sometimes there's magic yeah yeah every now and again every sometimes now and again sometimes this is in the future yeah, sometimes it, there's magic yeah. <laughs> yeah you definitely have me you've read every one of my right, stories right. right now I can tell and it's kind of it's yeah. a collection it's amazing that you know it so well without mm -hmm. seeing it mm -hmm. But yeah, but Bob like ends up you know um, saying that perhaps um, because he's liking my poetry so much and doesn't know much about my fiction, and none of the fiction professors at ASU, although they are great like Tim McNally, um, but they never really like said like you should get MFA. But Bob was like, yo, you should get an MFA, and I was like, whoa, what's that? And he's like, man, all you gotta do is get this MFA. If you get an MFA in book, you can be a professor. And I was like, what? And, like, suddenly that became something that was even, like, because that wasn't even in my mind. Like, my jam was I thought I was going to, like, work at a nonprofit and try to, like, work up towards that. Like, you know, I'd work for, like, Perg and, like, uh, what, what's other Sierra Club. I'd done, like, I'd done, I was, like, no matter what, like, pretty much, like, if I lost a job or whatever. And, like, I was always working crappy jobs, too, like, working at Walmart, Whataburger. Um, I was a janitor for a courthouse. Um, this is like so you're doing the the crappy job, also the nonprofit, also school, mm -hmm. just and like being a campaigning for political campaign. Well, that was through Acorn. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but like, and I guess the and that you can add to that is thrashing. Yeah. Like going hard in the downtown Phoenix scene, like okay. partying like a crazy person. Uh, just, because again, I'm like it just cracks me up, like the downtown Phoenix scene. Talk to me, because, like, I lived in Scottsdale for years, so mm -hmm. talk to me about the downtown Phoenix scene. What is that? Well, it was, like, when First Fridays, like, when you could still, like, carry, like, open, uh, like, have, like, drinks. Yeah, like, on like, the street. Yeah, on the streets. Like, so it was, like, the the kind of what, what uh, I've talked to a couple of other people who were there at the time. It was, like, a, like, kind of two to three year period where, like, First Fridays and the art scene of downtown Phoenix, like, was this kind of DJ graffiti, grimy, kind of Latino, kind of hip-hop, funk kind of aesthetic. They kind of merged for a hot second to where there were, like, three or four really cool DJs who were around and three or four really cool artists who were about, like, throwing dope shows. And so what would pretty much happen is very similar to um, Retro Road down the yeah. way and that one, but that... One, you could have your liquor in the street, and one that, like, instead of, like, in, in houses, people would just be spinning on the street. So, like, you could just have, like, almost New York-style hip-hop. like like yeah. Like, big speakers and, like, homie just, like, hitting, like, jamming. And so then, you know, you do First Fridays, you go to all the homies' exhibits, and then there's this bar called Hidden House on um, 7th and Thomas. And they had, like, hip-hop night, reggae night, um, funk night, and do just dope DJs were, I mean, you could just dance, like, just be, and, like, 
cost of living in downtown Phoenix now is insane because ASU downtown is there. But all that was just getting gentrified, well, you know? You also, like, there was nothing happening in downtown Phoenix. Like, this is amazing, and I feel like it had a chance to flourish because, like, the city, like, shut down. Mm-hmm. Like, at seven o'clock. Yeah, I, I, and then nobody's walking around downtown because down it's you 107. Guys had it to yeah. yeah, so we just ran the world. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? And honestly, you know, yeah, a lot of walking around because it's like the hot as the surface of the sun. You feel me? Yeah. And so I was living on like three o'clock in the morning. It's one hundred seventeen. You ain't lying, girl. Yeah. I was living on like six in Roosevelt at the time. Okay. And I mean, it was just like, and it was tawdry. It was everything like you know, it was everything that like I couldn't get into in Indiana, but had, like, the kind of guy, uh, the white male, disgruntled, I'm a badass kind of guys I was reading at the time. It was kind of similar to the life they were trying to live, and so, like, that was aesthetic. So, I've been noticing there's these weird pools in my life, and that's one of them, of, like, you know, I wanted to be like the kind of Bukowski, Hunter S. Thompson, like like a lot of like. All, like I feel like we all go through that. Yeah, stuff. right. Like I, I laugh at my like students now. When, yeah, yeah, when when they when they come up like when, like a couple of my students this semester, you know, on the first day of class, I always ask them, you know, who their favorite writer is. And like I had like three uh, guys say like Bukowski, and I was just like, and I just smiled, and I was like, I remember that day. Yeah, I remember totally. that day. <laughs> and um, yeah, so like I I felt like. And it's weird to like that you try to find authenticity because of that. Like I thought that that was like approaching the real, not weird. not seeing the facade of that, you know, yeah. not seeing the hollowness in that, yeah. not seeing um, how that all like that was all just another meta narrative that was pushed on us. Yes, you know what I mean. Totally. Like and and I didn't like. Of course, you don't at the time, but like again, you're trying to figure out. I'm trying to figure out literally like what kind of dude. Yeah, it's it's a search for identity. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like those things that we get praised for, it's like you can't help but want. You got lucky that you got praised for something that had value. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because you could have gone the absolute other way. I mean, I think about that all the time, you know, like. You know, joking with uh, Kay, you know, going into the family business, if you will. and, you know, I think another thing, you know, when you've been on the edge like you and I have, is that you realize how how precarious everything is. How, like, you know, I always tell, you know, people, you know, like, whenever we walk uh, around homeless people, I'm always like, it's only a couple decisions, man. Totally. Like, you're two... that all the time. Like, it's two decisions. Mm-hmm. Two decisions away from being on the streets. Mm-hmm. Like, two bad decisions can literally have you in this apartment and then have you, like, on 7th right now. Totally agree. And, like, that, like, I think, like, when you don't come from wealth like us, and then when you've lived, um, again, like, I guess the best, the most euphemistic way to put it is on the edge, um, like we have, is, like, you really kind of understand that. And so that precarity is also one of the things that kind of made the want to be in a nonprofit world even more, because, like... I saw that precarity, I seen the hood precarity, and then I seen like, you know, these kind of burly white men who like kind of straddled both of them, like who were still still thrashing and getting fucked up, but then writing really what I thought was really dope stuff at the time. And so I thought to myself, that's something I can step into. I want to continue. Yeah, I want to continue thrashing, but then have people really praise me for all the things I could do. You know, I was always trying to figure out how to play the guitar because I... I saw singer-songwriting like hip-hop, but one of the ways I could do that. Pretty much I was trying to always find a way to make meaning and be the kind of check-in with myself at all times kind of person that I've always been and trying to find a way to incorporate all that into my life. 
Do you think that that um, there's a desire? Because I think this about myself is that desire to be seen, because you know you you're almost like afraid of disappearing, like it, of this idea of being nothing or like being non-worthy or not having value. So this idea of being a performer and being on a stage, you know, Natalie and I always talk about like what would you be if you weren't a writer? And mm-hmm. like her and I both said I would be a singer because I mm-hmm. love being on stage and I love stage, that yeah. immediate reaction to your work, yep. right? Which we don't really get as writers. Yeah, I mean, you hit it right on. I mean, I would. Well, first off, I always say if I wasn't doing this, I would, like what I would dream to be is 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 some kind of something in the music world. Right. So totally with you there. Um, I think because of things we were talking about later uh, earlier, I don't know really if I'm on the any more about the not wanting to be seen. Now I kind of want it, want that uh, right. amenity. Um, but when I first started, and like kind of uh, undercurrent of my whole life is trying to fight the erasure of myself. I totally get that. Yeah. I totally get that. Of like, I always thought to myself, I just can't be another black dude in Anderson. I just can't be another dude who just like goes to a job and dies. I just can't be another dude who um, uh, moves out to suburbia and hates his life. I, I, I totally feel you. Like yeah. of like this feeling as though you're fighting erasure. And I think also like for me, not only fighting erasure, but then figuring it out again going back to that like figuring out how how i connect to all this shit that's going on this whole nexus that is going on of the world you know like i feel like you know like so many times i think to myself man you should have just been a motherfucking like lawyer or you should have just went to business school i'm like you got a big personality like i was like i don't even know the job i would do in business but i know i have a big personality so like i was like you'd probably be one of those people by now who don't really do a job but still make a lot of money because i i know those people you know what i mean like you know who like they have meetings all day but like when you really press them what do you really do at this corporation but they make bank and like i think like that's like i i think to myself all the time i could have probably did something like that and I would have way more money but then that's also that erase life yeah totally you know what I mean because yeah. what does your life mean like you know um people who I know who make a ton of money you know like some uh case parents friends and things like that they just go to a job and they have like a couple of hobbies but like really like their life just feels like it's any life and I yeah. suppose like my life is any writerly life right I know that's true yeah but then at the same time there's something about like putting your chorus into the song of all the songs that we've been singing forever that feels like that it matters more than somebody making a part for a company or running a meeting for a company it feels and i don't know if the cultural capital really is worth more yeah to be all the way honest but i tell myself i tell myself it is like i tell my students too that like because again my whole thing is the stories we tell ourselves are the most important thing so there's a part of me who really thinks that me contributing to that song that's why like getting on poetry foundation mattered so much to me because i'm like these are people who like publish like you know love song and jf for proof rock and in the metro like the no and again like those are two like we talk about how problematic those two writers are but just that they're so canonized and like to know that like I'm a part of that now. Yeah. No matter what happens in my writing career, like some researcher could find me. And knowing that I'm a part of the song that is the song of us singing of humanity, that feels bigger. More and feel- valuable. Yes. Yeah, I totally agree. But I don't know about the hierarchy. Like yeah, this know. is what I'm going back and forth about. You know, especially on this side of thirty. Like of like, but is it though? Yeah. 
Or would it have just been doper just to make some bank and then, like, be having a family? I think that has something to do with age. Because, like, also, I think we all start to question, like, our existence. It's like that, you know, that existential crisis that we all have as, mm -hmm. as we approach middle age. Because, like, I have friends that went to college and they are that person and they have a ton of money and mm -hmm. they have two houses and they're doing all the things that they're supposed to do. And for the most part, they're happy, but, you know, they also feel like they're missing out on yeah. something. So I do feel like it's a balance. It's like we make these choices, and you are you have to feel like some way you're contributing. Like, do mm -hmm. you have kids, or do you, you know, in some way you're contributing to the song? Because that's a contribution to the song oh, as well. Oh, yeah, you ain't lying you know? one bit. And, and it's a meaningful one. Right, seriously. right. It's just, they can have it. Yep. Um, <laughs> but... You know, do you think that poetry? I, I think of you as a truth teller, mm -hmm. and I think that. Well, thank you. you that's have, a heavy burden. <laughs> well, you also, I think we were talking about this earlier. Like, I write creative nonfiction, and I just like, because I'm writing, like, this is actually what happened. Both my brothers were in prison. You know, my mom killed herself. You know, mm -hmm. I have all these terrible things that I don't hide, and I have to confront those things on a daily basis. Like, if I'm going to talk about them, people want to talk about them on social media, blah, blah, blah. Do you think that it's that, that part of being a poet is that you're able to like more allude to those things without having to come right out and say them? Uh, not for me because I write in a post-confessional vein. Okay. Um, I I think like I was immediately attracted to the confessional poets like you know Plath, Lowell, Sexton, Berryman. Like when I first got to know, I was like, oh, this is different. This is different. Um, and so for me, you know, of course, like I always tell people, it's not memoir, it's not creative nonfiction, but it's still very close. Like I like to think of it like Pam Houston, and I and I problem problem one of her quotes that I'm about to say, but I problematize this notion of like what really happened and you telling the truth in writing because memory is a construction as right. well. Yeah. So I always problematize, yeah. yeah, I always problematize that notion. Like uh, Pam Houston has that quote, like. 85% of my fiction is uh, true and 15% uh, of it is uh, uh, some some connection to where it's 85% of it is always uh, true and 15% is is not true right. uh, of fiction or non-fiction. Right, right, right. Yeah. Everything she writes is only 85% true. Okay. And, 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 I, and I, I totally agree with that. Yeah, okay. and I, and I kind of like that, that, that kind of relationship to it. Cause so I don't think I get to come at it slay, and I try it like I like people, my readers, you know, and this is another reason why I'm afraid and feel so exposed as well. Know that my mom died. Know that my dad did uh, sixteen. Uh, uh, got a long bid in prison. Know that my brothers did prison uh, did bids in prisons. Uh, know that uh, you know I was raised by my auntie. Like you know all those things are are factual. But then like you know kind of I always tell people trust the truth of the poem more. Like I guess the best example that I always give with this is the poem heading down. Right. It's a poem I read all the time, poem that's like, you know, it's one of my big publications, big deal for my career, right? And so pretty much what happens in the poem is like the speaker of the poem is driving with his white partner um, and sees a Confederate flag on a truck. And so I say that that's happening on our way into Kentucky because that sounds dope as hell. But really, we were just like driving in Anderson when that happened, you know what I'm saying? But like, it goes way harder if you're like passing the Mason-Dixon. <laughs> like, you know, suddenly the weight of it goes harder, you know? And so like- more life or death. Yes, yeah. you feel me? The stakes just rise up so much, you know, than, you know, just us hitting a corner in Anderson and that's how it is in Anderson all the time, right? Um, and so those kind of things, or like, you know, um, like we're keeping it real, like the story of like my dad being about to go to jail and like, uh, giving me a gun to hold so like the police don't find a gun. Like that actually like happened to my brother. Okay. 
But then, like, it's more powerful because cause all the yeah. mediation, the level of mediation is like, if I'm like, my father told my brother, to, right, you, you right, feel right. me? Like, yeah, it, yeah, the yeah. immediacy is all gone. Right. So, like, if I, like, just have the speaker have it happen, then it's like, so, again, those kind of things of, like, kind of my relationship to what happened. So, like, for me, it's not, like, about... It's like a deeper level of truth. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm trying to mind, like vertical writing. I'm always telling my students about, you know, stop writing so horizontal. Let's go for vertical writing. And so, like, I think, like, I'm more of getting, like, you know, I think it's my Angela talk, like, you know, like, more about how people feel. Like, like again, and that's why I'm big on this about thinking about, like, memory and, like, my relationship to truth. And the election tells us this, too, to go back to the 45th, is, like, what people think and feel is happening is way more important as far as their decisions and how they interact with the world than what really happened. So, like, the fact I felt like that my aunt, you know, and I were, like, not in a good place and that we were combative so early in my life, that matters more than really, like, that she was, like, really dope because I just felt like that, you know what I mean? I felt like that. And so, like, that's what I wrote in my writing. So, like, that ended up, like, coloring and leading my decisions way more than what the truth was of that like she was this incredible woman who didn't have to raise me who was just like about the age I am now living her life doing her thing and then suddenly she has this eight-year-old that she has to watch and like those are the kind of things I understand now but like again the way I thought about it at the time was like always just like so mad at her and everything and you're not my mom and And I'm sorry that I'm a white black boy you sent me to Catholic school I hate you like all those kind of things right and like really you know this woman like totally like sacrificed her whole life to raise me but again how you feel about a situation and again that plays out in the election that like you know like unemployment rates and like all the things like think about the distance from the uh, from when Obama steps into office 800,000 jobs being lost a month to like unemployment at like 3% right Right. that distance of that 8 years but all my homie, all my white homies in um, in Indiana and in the South, all these white folks feel like America forgot them and we're so bad and things are yeah. still so horrible. And Obama uh, is so bad, you know, yeah. r- racialized, of course, yeah. as well. And then gendered, of course, like uh, with um, Hillary running. Yeah. But l- that color in its too, you know, always overdetermined. But like just people really feeling like shit, like shit is fucked up. Yeah. And just feeling like that, even though shit was getting way better, right. but just because right. they felt it. Yeah. They acted accordingly. And so the same thing happens personally, you know? Like, yeah, all those, like, things, facts, bad things happen to you. But, like, it's more of, like, your relationship to how you feel about them. Yeah. That matters way more yeah. than, like, really, like, what, like, you know, like, one time, like, in one of the poems I got published, uh, um, Good Night Baby, I even, like, had the year wrong of, like, how old I was when my mom died. You know, but then it, like, sounds doper when it's, like, XYZ age. But, like, I even had it wrong because, like, even in my mind, I had created it. So, again, I always tell students uh, when they're writing, like, the story you tell yourself is more important than what happened. Right, right. And that's been something, again, on this side of 30 middle age shit that I've been thinking a lot about. About, like, all the things I've told myself about myself matter so much more than, like, really what the jams were. And and so trying to get close. Yeah close back to those moments are just really interesting because you're just always another thing you know and I'm not the first person to say this but this is something that I've been really kind of wrestling with is that like you tell yourself the story that you can live with you know what I mean no I do and like understanding that like it's a better story in my life to like say for example with like the first serious relationship in my life it's a better story to like tell myself that like you know that I uh, that like she hurt me and that she was mean to me and that like 
when she uh, went off to a different school that she did all these things instead of saying that like I was like you know a fuck boy and I was trying to be a pimp and that I was very that I cared about drugs more than I cared about her it, it's way easier to tell the other story than to tell you know that story you know what I mean but I think also when you get distance from that you can accept that yeah you fucked up and you're you know you you can it becomes less black and white and you can exist in the gray which i think mm-hmm. when we're younger and we're extreme people we don't know how to do that mm-hmm. and you know I, that's just happened with me with my dad it's like my dad doesn't want me to write about him and it's like he sees he has his truth of what happened as do mm-hmm. my brothers you know and my mom's gone like all the people are dead that mm-hmm. could counteract it but you're right it's like this is the way i remember it but i can also see like this is the way I remember it, and that doesn't mean that's the truth. Yeah, I can't. At the time, yeah. I couldn't tell myself Could. that 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 relationship that was the most important relationship in my life was going the way it was going because of me. Exactly. So I had to tell myself yeah. that it was all her, yeah. and like, so you do that. Like, I have sto- the story you can live with. Yeah, yeah, I can't tell myself, you know, that you know that there's this woman who sacrificed her whole life for you. No, I tell myself that you know that she's almost this wicked aunt. Yeah. Right. And, you know, because then I get to be this, like, uh, you know, hated on hero who gets to rise up. You, you feel me? Like, yeah. like so you create these yeah. narratives in yeah. which, like, you know, you, and, it, and it also goes back to my whole thing about, like, our generation of being, like, that we have third omniscient, right? Yeah. Like, they're, like, I'm the hero of this. Yeah. So, of right. course, these, like, little supporting actors are, like, just obstacles for, like, yeah. my, me doing something dope. Do you think that that's more, like, that's something that's, that is... Uh, a symptom of technology that we feel like we're like the star of our own movie or do you think that's just a human thing I think it's probably a human thing that's given a lot more pressure because of technology and because of movies yeah because I mean just even the thought that like people sat around and were like yo we should make up a story and then act it out and then we'll do that every year during the state like that's a weird thing they like so I think we've always been like kind of trying to narratize ourselves and like put our existence into a vessel that we can kind of control more you know what i realized a lot with aesthetics to kind of shift it a little bit is like a lot of the kind of old school thinking with poetry is like you know that you put order onto madness Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, you know what i mean Mm -hmm. that like you know the world's all crazy and then if you put this shit in blank verse (laughs) suddenly it makes more sense sense. you know what i mean yeah Yeah. and and so like i think like that that whole idea of like that if you like put it into this uh this uh creative nonfiction and memoir if you put it into this book testify this suddenly this shit's gonna make sense and i think we've always been trying to do that but i think the idea of like seeing a movie and seeing that happen or seeing like all these like the young 80s male protagonists and like i also realized how much that dominates my life too which is also this third person omniscient thing too of like you know that there's this this young boy who's coming of age and now like you know that's really hot at least uh, with women now like the, the young women protagonists yeah, you know yeah. what i'm saying mm-hmm. and so like i think those things all kind of lend itself to us putting more press and then you add social media to where you can create a whole self that literally exists just in this ether world and you add that to it with the kind of backing of like you know this kind of we're the center of the universe's storytelling kind of stuff really gets us to this kind of navel gazing insulated (laughs) yet yet he's looking at his navel right now yeah sorry that was the missing (laughs) um but navel gazing but then also because i feel like our navel gazing is different than generation xers like my uh brother's generation millennial navel gazing because our navel gazing is still interconnected to the wider world Mm. 
So it's like this communal navel. Like I know that's like pericazzo. because of social media. Yes. yes. So it's this Ooh. communal. Yeah. It's very communal peri- navel. Yeah, it's paradoxical, but I feel like it's more true. You know what I mean? Dude, can I tell you that I had someone ask to take a picture of my belly button on the street because he had a belly button Instagram of people on the streets. Anything you can think of. Anything you can think but, of. But like that is so insane because I never really thought of it that way. But it's like this idea of communal. This is literally yes. communal. No, all, but what the reason <laughs> I'm tripping all even like that's insane. Yeah. And who knows and what all that guy's because what all that guy's investments yeah. is. Who knows? That's a that's a novel. Yeah. Uh, uh, but what I, <laughs> the idea that trips me out <laughs> about that is my homie uh, Mike once told me he was like, dude. And this is undergrad days. You know, we're you know I'm quite the druggie and we're just all fucked up. And he's like, dude, anything you can think of. There's a ton of it on the internet. He's like, he's like, just say anything, you know. And then that was like, like a revelation. You guys are probably like, Ooh. no, because it was crazy. Because we do like, you know, we'd say anything like, you know, I'm looking over there and like people, uh, people who are into pencils, pencil porn. Type it in, dude. There is a whole world of people who just like see a pencil and like are gonna whack one off, go yeah. rub one off right now, like because of seeing it. You feel yeah. me? Like yeah. oh, yeah. and so like that. So just like hearing you say that, like this homie's on some belly button yeah. stuff. Like I'm just like, and of the course. Fact that I was like, of course you can take a picture of my belly button. <laughs> right. I did it. I have no idea where that ended up, but yeah. But of course there is, right? Yeah. Of course there's a guy who yeah. has a catalog of belly buttons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of course, right, that's right, what we've done. Right, that's right. what we've done. So uh, you. You're, you're you finished testify exists in the world and i i'm not finished so does it feel different because testify exists in the world and is winning awards and does it feel i always say that it's it's significantly more exposure than you ever think it is uh that that's one of the things that i didn't really realize and again going back to the kind of spectrum of like you, you you start out trying to fight against erasure towards like thinking to myself what if i could be more anonymous when people read what they can tell feels as though it is the speaker's story, when it's a poetry in the confessional vein, they have the same kind of relationship they have to you guys yeah. uh, as creative nonfiction. So people feel like they know me and own a part of me. Right. Because they've sat in their room in the dark and read poems by themselves that they saw themselves in through my subjective experience. So they feel like they own part of that. So people talk to you like differently, you know, like in Q&As and stuff and like when they come to get their book signed and like... That exposure, I wasn't ready for and, and feel wounded by sometimes. Really? Um, surprisingly, also empowered by, but like surprised by like where you're like, you know, like where some people would just be like, you know, like, oh man, like, you know, like I hate my dad too. I don't know if I hate my dad, you know, right. like, and like, and like, you realize, you know, like, you know. They're making the, assumptions about you. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. They feel like they know you uh, and they feel like they know it all and they feel like they got it all. Yeah. You know, and I think that's a weird thing. And I think the other thing um, is I, I feel like a snitch. That's yes. the other thing. That's the other thing. I, I get called that. Nobody has yet, but I I have called myself. And, yeah. and, um, and you know, there's a saying in black community, like, don't say certain things around mixed company. Yeah. And, like, you know, I recently wrote an essay where I, like, just an explanation, like, you know, like, it, it, with explanation point afterwards of, like, I have speaking out of turn in mixed company. Like, I feel like I have, like, not only let parts of myself that are tender out, but also, like, parts of, like, you know, like, I talk a lot about, like, color lit. And not that I'm the first person. I'm by far not the first person to talk about color lit. Colorism and, like, you know, like, stuff with, like, hair textures. Like, I talk a lot about, like, my mama good hair and stuff like that. But just, like, talking about those kind of things, like, 
or you know like that my auntie or like family members call like white white people pink toes and stuff like that like does it feel like kind of like tattling like yep yeah Yeah, and it feels like like my whole life it's so funny because like my whole life i've always felt like not a black enough black dude and then like this book is own like that book is about that and then it also reinforces that right you know what i mean um so you know it's kind of you know the snake eating its tail kind of thing so interesting to me like being a white woman it's like mixed company always meant to me just men and women like you don't talk about it and it was something that men said about women Mm -hmm. like it was that and so when you think mixed company Mm -hmm. do you immediately think black and white yeah yeah i mean don't say don't be saying that shit around white folks yeah yeah. you know interesting Uh. do you feel because this is what i feel sometimes when i share something or when i write this essay and i think it's so beautiful but it is about my mom dying and like whatever like to me it's a piece of art out of suffering Mm -hmm. and then do you feel like like I bristle at pity. Mm. Like I feel like, oh my god, I'm so sorry that mm. happened to you. And it's How'd like, you that's make not it? what it's about. Mm-hmm. It's about making something beautiful out of something ugly. Yep. So like, does that rub you the wrong way? Do you bristle at that too? Do you yep. feel like people are like, oh, poor Dougie? That one's the heaviest because like, it's also part of the like that they think they own you, right? Like, like I feel like people really think they own your story and like they feel sorry for you. They're feeling sorry for you. So it's power, right? Yeah, I own your yes. story and I feel sorry for you. Yes. And so that kind of flip of like that I was trying to be empowered by telling this narrative and now I feel subjective from the reception of what's happening with this narrative is another crazy paradoxical rabbit hole that like really exhaust me. Yeah, like going back to heading down, you know, like they hear about that situation and they're like, I'm just just so sorry that happened to you. Yeah. And I'm like, that's like not what you should be thinking. We should be thinking about how to like fight systemic racism or how to like make sure that like, you know, that, uh, that this dude can't roll down the street uh, with the flag of somebody who lost trying to split up our democracy, literally. Yeah. Literally traitors. Literally traitors. Like, that's the thing that blows my mind about this. Like, these people are so patriotic. patriotic. And then literally, traitors. Yeah. Like, the Confederate flag is a symbol of traitors. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, if we're gonna... And of course, like, I can talk about the world and more nuance than that. Like, I understand that, like, you know, on the local level that they didn't view it like that on the local level. Like, you're literally just trying to save your farm. Like, I understand that narrative. Yeah. I understand, like, that subjective small truth narrative. But again, I'm always talking to my students about all the layers of truth that we work with. You know, like, the, the right is really, like, with this alternative facts and things, they've really messed with, like, all the kind of liberal arts notions of, like, manufacturing truth and different layers of truth to land on that. And, like, it's, again, them, like, taking a really complex idea and making it, like, just simple. Like, dude, we can have our facts and you have our facts. And that's what I'm not, I'm not saying that by levels of truth, you know, what I'm talking about is that like stories are told that mean something toward the way people are identified and that those stories can be subjective, but there's still like facts out there. And I just, I hate that manipulation that has come to that. Like it can be true that somebody was trying to save their little pallet of land and that they didn't want their farm to go, but also be true that this is a (laughs) a systemic system that's uh, erasing a whole people that... Uh, another group is trying to fight to eliminate like all those things can be happening at the same time but then what you can't say to me is to then say that like that these people were fighting for the right cause right you know what i mean you you can and so like that that's like 
but look how long that took to say. But isn't it just easier to just say like, well, I'm I like Confederate flag, so I'm fighting because I'm trying to keep my ancestors alive. Yeah. I guess that's true. Yeah. But can we like keep talking? Yeah, <laughs> like you right. know, because then I'll tell you like why that's an affront to me. Like, yeah. and and I just feel like the way our rhetoric is gone, there's like no room for nuance like that. And to connect everything to what we we're just talking about is, I feel like that's what happens with our work. Is it like the easy narrative, like so? I mean, did that happen to you? Yeah, oh my so god. Sorry. Yeah. Instead of yeah. like, instead of like. What happened? What the fuck? Because all I think about when you're talking is like, what the hell is happening in in Canada? That this is like this is the little jam that like that microcosm is so invisible. Like, because in my mind, you know, like I think of either like rural Canada or the big cities. Yeah. And then other than that, like I don't really understand anything with Canada. And then I hear this, and I'm like, so Canada's like Nebraska here? Like this sounds like something that would happen in Nebraska. You feel me? You know? Like well, this sounds like something that would. I just, I just think it's 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 like endemic. It's just part of Western culture. It's like people don't understand race, systemic racism. They don't understand mental health issues. They mm-hmm. don't understand class issues. Like it's just that's just the way it is. And it, like you said, it's easier to look at it from this tiny perspective of I know you personally or I think I know you personally so I'm going to apologize that you felt that way Mm -hmm. or like you know I I really do think that we got into this place with Trump because people were so afraid of losing what they had and whatever that was their job their fucking Ferrari Mm -hmm. their 401k or their whiteness or their whiteness you know Mm -hmm. and it's like we've been on top for so long and what what happens when we're not on top anymore Mm -hmm. And it's like people, it makes them not care about other people. Yeah. And it's so fucking sad. Yeah, you, you know? Right. So, I don't know. I don't know where that was coming from. But just that idea, like, I know you got off social media. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that that feeling of being pitied, I have to feel like that's part of. Oh, no, that's definitely part of Because it. that's not the conversation that you're trying to spark or be a part of. No, you know, like, instead of talking about, you know, feeling sorry for me, I'd rather people talk about... Um, eradicating the prison industrial complex um i'd rather talk about the way we don't that we're just now starting to realize that the generation that came up with the crack epidemic reaganomics uh the aids epidemic and the uh i guess the war on drugs will go with the crack epidemic Mm -hmm. but those three things and the birth of hip-hop those three things just make us a little different has like uh, early 80s, late 70s babies. Like, if you're in that pocket, yeah. it's just slightly, like, that maturation, like, like it's, it's as, what, it's over, like, swinging has, like, the Vietnam War yeah. and um, Watergate and the Civil Rights Movement totally. for the boomers. Like, that's the stuff that, like, makes us who, are, who we are. And there's so much residual trauma and horror from those, the creation and the, um, I guess, um, occurrence of those three things that really just like make us like slightly different and are and then add the internet those are the things that like make us like right like are well, because who we we're are the last generation that knows what it was like before the internet yes right and so like you go to the internet so that thing that makes yeah. us weird then you go like the crack epidemic right of like literally seeing people look like zombies walking yeah. around right right and then you go the AIDS epidemic, and then also that's the rise of like you know uh, homophobia in general as well, like coloring that with that of like these gay people are dying. Like, uh, like I remember seeing that, like when Pedro died on the real world. Yeah. Like that, I just that was like, 
I was I, I think I was like 10 or something I was like well and like because you love this character and like you know like like gayness had like kind of been an er- undercurrent in my life like I such like mom would be like such such so gay such such so that you know he yeah. funny that yeah, yeah. she funny duh. it was like yeah. just this thing but then to like have this dude again and then going to the rise of media that we deal with having this dude in your house every week and then like you just thought to yourself because it was TV that there's no way he dies yeah right because it's that TV. Doesn't happen on television. Yeah, yeah, there's no way he yeah. dies. Yeah. And then he dies, and it was just. And then, you know, and then you add in, like, the rise of, like, you know, of, like, all the third wave feminism and fourth wave feminism mm-hmm. now. And you add that, like, all into it, and it just makes this crazy nexus of, like, what us, like, elder millennials are that is slightly different than, like, the millennials and whatever you call the new ones. Yeah, I don't know what they call you guys yet. <laughs> I, 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 think, I think it's something else. I don't know if it's millennial anymore. I think I heard they call you guys something else. I feel like we could talk, we're, this is like an hour already, oh, and we this... haven't even like talked about GOV or emergency voice. No, no, that's insane, and, and like honestly, I still haven't even got to how I got to my MFA, like that's how, like we're almost there, but, but no, seriously, uh, well I told you this was going to happen though. How did you get to your MFA, Doug? <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Um, I guess, uh, so where are we going to start? Um, Bob Haynes. Bob Haynes said yeah. that you should get an MFA, and you're like, what is that? Yeah, so this dude's like, you can be, if you write, if you eventually get a book and you have this degree, you can be a professor. Total game changer. Like, at most, I thought about being a high school t- uh, teacher, you know, like, for a while, that became, like, in my imagination. Eventually, I'll be, like, a high school history teacher or English teacher. Right. That felt... Uh, that felt uh, like, like something you could accomplish. Like yeah. It's it doable, real, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. tangible. Yeah. And so, yeah, um... My dad and I are getting reacquainted. My dad gets out of prison. And, and, you know, I'm trying to figure out things with him. And, you know, Butler's... It felt like that it was a place that was attainable because it wasn't that known. It was brand new. It felt like... I didn't want... Again, I'm just now getting praised with this. I didn't want, I didn't want to hear new. Well, I don't <laughs> think any of us ever do. So yeah, but... but weird. Yeah. yeah, so totally. So then, you know, that's what ends up happening. They say yes. They want to give me money. It was just like, whoa. Whoa. And then it's like, this is really happening, you know? And I had just gotten a relationship with Kay. You know, not just, but, like, maybe we had been together for, like, a year. And, like, it was just, it's one of the most, like, I tell the story all the time because it's one of the, like, turning points in my life. But, like, you know, I'm literally, like, so I have all this happening and I'm going to move. And, like, I kind of think it's going to, we're breaking up. Like, we're going to do a breakup speech. And, you know, she's, like, silent for a couple minutes. And then she's, like, well, when are we leaving? Aww. Like, everybody yeah. does it. Yeah. yeah, everybody does that. It's the best story ever. And so, yeah. And so, next thing I know, you know, like, I'm trying to act like a big shot at, AH, at uh, Butler. Like, I'm, like, this, like, dope writer. And it's just because, like, I suddenly feel dope because of that. So, I, like, come in like I'm awesome. You know, I'm getting a scholarship, and it's a fledgling program, a young program, rather. So, Did it feel serendipitous? Like, did it just kind of feel like it, it happened to you? Like, how much work did it feel like you put in? You're filling out applications. Did you apply to anywhere else? Uh, no, that was like, because like with Bob, like he yeah. pretty much almost damn near handled all that okay. shit. I guess it didn't feel, and this is what I was talking about with like the book too, what I'll talk about later, but what we were talking about before is like, my path towards this game has, like, it's been a lot of hard work, but it's felt more like, like I don't want to say luck because that's with the serendipity thing, but more just like, what the fuck? Oh, okay. Yeah. This is what we're doing. Like, like I guess that is luck. Yeah, yeah. No, is it more like saying yes? Like these opportunities present themselves, and you're he, he mentioned this to you, and you're like yes. Yeah. So you did it. Yeah, because because what I more feel like is I kind of what I'm more realizing is I kind of feel like that I've gone through my life not making things happen, but things have just like been like I've just been like oh, 
okay, we'll do that. Yeah. That's more how I felt okay. about my life. And, yeah. and that makes me feel a certain kind of way. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't feel like I've made things happen. Of course, like, I can find a narrative to tell to myself of making me happy. I can tell you, you know, that, like, you know, I wrote Testify for not, uh, for 10 years. That there are poems that I worked on with Bob that are in Testify. Yeah. I can tell you that, you know, that I fucking went to work with Bob every week. Yeah. to line edit things that I was writing short stories at the time that like pretty much in undergrad I got all bad grades in every class except for English classes all I did was pretty much smoke weed and read books all the time yeah. and so if it meant like getting high and reading books or like doing XYZ assignment for something else I would not do it that I had like just years of just reading whatever I wanted yeah. and like pretty much I just get stoned and eat books like yeah. just eat books yeah. like literally um, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. and so yeah I can tell you all that but then I can also tell you that like it's just things like Bob, like who's just being like, yeah, and this one sounds good. And then like at Butler that like, you know, that I'm like, you guys don't have any teaching opportunities. Like I want to teach or I'm not going to be able to get a job. And then like they plug you with these. And then like for Butler, like, you know, me not think, no, not wanting to be an adjunct and I don't have any books. And then, you know, they're like, you should probably try to get a PhD then. And I'm like, I guess I should oh, try to get a PhD. So that's where that came. Yeah, you know what I mean? And then so, you know, and then Kay's the most organized person in the world, so she makes all these spreadsheets of all these different places for us to apply, and then I just apply there. And then USC says yes. And then, you know, and then with the book, you know, I'm at a dinner party, and then David's like, Kate, you need to read this book. And then Kate's like, send it. And then, you know, after a lot of wait and work, I send it. And then Kate's like, yes. You feel me? So, like, I, I feel a real, and this is something I've been wrestling with a lot lately, a real lack of agency in how things have happened. And I don't know if that's, like, I I think to myself if I had like worked hard and did, and been the kind of person I wish I was, instead of this kind of ambling, whatever I am, that like maybe, like things are dope now, but maybe things would be like super dope if I like, like, you know what I mean? I totally agree, I think about that all the time. Yeah, because like again, I don't really think I make things, and again, I can create a narrative in which I'm making these things happen. But like really it more feels as though that like I just keep on just kind of like and this is what I wanted to do in my 20s when I said it is like I'm just gonna like ride this out and see what happens like it's more like you know I'm saying like that I just didn't call a groove and I just keep on dancing (laughs) to the beat and everybody's just like you jam and I'm like all right I'll keep dancing (laughs) and that's more instead of me thinking like playing the music I won't keep dancing yes that's exactly it instead of me thinking like I'm going to play this song and do this dance move. Yeah. It's been more like that there was a song playing and I started grooving to that beat yeah. and then I just kept on yeah. doing my little moves and then things like happened. And so what I really hope to kind of go back to like what we were talking about before too is that like I just really hope that the for real job in academia can happen that way too. Because right, right. like, because what I realize now, now that the like going onto the real job market, what it feels like is that like I have to actually make something happen and I haven't done that before. Right. And, yeah. and so now I just, I, I'm like, I just hope that I can just do the little dog pop lock and still get <laughs> right. in there. Yeah, <laughs> you know? just thank you, like, yeah. you right on into work. Yeah, that's what I So hope. when are you done with the PhD? Um, I, I can be done at the at the end of this year. I mean, like, I, if I if I do that, I'll probably have to defend in the fall, but, like, that'll be fine. I'm, I'm ABD. I'm all but dissertation, so pretty much I just got to, you know, do, like, every PhD does and push the gas and just 
throw together a dissertation and What's the to- what is the topic? What do you think? Oh, uh, that's fun. Not really. It's just because no. I hate it. Um, but not that I hate it, but just like when you're the dual PhD, like depending on your relationship to scholarship, and my relationship to scholarship is the following: is it it's become more of a burden. Like I don't. What I've realized is I don't mind talking about these ideas, but what I don't like is the real like grunt of like defending them academically on a page. Yeah, of bringing them into the world. Yeah. Like I don't even really mind talking about it once it's done or all that stuff, but just like the real work that it is to just like bring out a real dissertation or a real critical papers is just like really not it really doesn't sound fun at all it's not my it's just really not my approach nor my relationship with literature so it's like like the whole time you're at the phd and all of us talk about this a lot uh colleagues that is is like you have to remind yourself why you like literature like literature suddenly becomes a job instead of a hobby yeah in a, in a way different way in a way different way when you're doing it from a sky even, even different from editorial work yeah. when it's scholarly it's like a different thing like you know like we all talk about a, trying to find ways to still love literature i mean really quickly like uh my dissertation is pretty much um my argument is is that like a lot of gestures that we deem as high modern uh you know like fragmentation uh non sequitur uh polyvocal uh hybrid forms that like you know things that like you see in the wasteland things that you see from like wallace stevens things that you see from joyce um virginia wolf and things all the hallmarks of high modernism those aesthetics can be found in the black canon as well happening in the harlem renaissance what we call the harlem renaissance which is like a reductive term because like most of the writers didn't live in harlem or even have a relationship with harlem but that's another thing that my dissertation has to spin wheels with because I problematize that term. But yeah, that you can find them in like, you know, what we would ghettoize as like, you know, like black literature. And so like going from that premise, I talk about Cain by Gene Toomer and put that work in conversation with T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland to kind of make this argument that kind of against the grain of like that uh, kind of ghettoizing saying, here's modernism, here's a semester of, of Harlem Renaissance, da, 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 that kind of separation and segregation. Like we miss how everybody's responding to the same kind of cultural I guess, and kind of uh, like creating an aesthetic circle instead of like aesthetic like just like all these like like segregated neighborhoods it really right. like there's these like kind of venn diagrams happening everywhere and so that's a more kind of instructive way that i think like like because to me it wouldn't like instead of just feeling like the you know black history uh, black literature in the harlem renaissance just something tailed in at the end like if we were just like dealing with aesthetic moves and then in just incorporating everybody who does ex-aesthetic moves with our pedagogy, yeah. I feel like that'd be more inclusive. So like it's a call for no demarcations with like uh, as far as genres and as far as like ethnic groups and, and, and subjective experiences while using subjective experiences right. to define it. So that's another reason why it's spin wheels. Yeah. So like um, all I really want to do is just try to figure out a way to just write kind of a close read, close readings, almost comparison, compa- and compare and contrast of like Wasteland and Kane and try to get out there. Because if not, there's a lot of um, theoretical pitfalls that I can fall in of really spinning wheels. Because like, how can you call for, don't segregate things while still like defining them through like what their subjective experience is. Like, it's a lot. Wow. <laughs> 
Yeah. I hope it made sense. No, it totally did. I think it's so it's interesting too because I feel like you can speak to literature on any level or art or craft on any level, which I think is so interesting. Which I don't feel like I have that. Well, the I PhD does that. that. I didn't do yeah. that when I started. Yeah. Like I, I will say that. Yeah. Like for all the shit I talk about the PhD, one thing I always tell people is, I know for a fact I'm a better reader. Yeah. Writer, that's forever up for a debate. But I know for a fact I'm a better reader. And I know for a fact that like any kind of cultural artifact that you want to talk about, because of the steroids of inter- uh, uh, of literary theory and cultural theory that they give you, like I can talk to you and sound smart about your sketches over there. I can talk to you, uh, anybody about music, if I know something about what they're listening yeah. to and sound smart. Yeah. Like you know what I mean? Like like that's one of the things. Like yeah, like I feel like that I'm a. So sound smart, like, does, do you feel like you also have a better understanding? Like, not... I, th- that's what I debate. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, people say I do, but like, I, 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 can, I can, I can do the bells and whistles mm-hmm. of like what we have now deemed as cultural capital. Mm-hmm. Like, I always talk to my students about different kind of using Pierre uh, Debo's idea of like uh, Berdo of like cultural capital of like. You don't know why this photo of, you know, the guy uh, standing in, like, a rundown neighborhood with, like, Fairland, why that matters, right? Well, of course, because of social media, you know, it matters because, like, that's what people post. But, like, if you don't really know, like, if you're just, like, a young, like, urban person who ain't never seen no, uh, quote-unquote, photography as high art, what the fuck does that picture matter? I see that all the time. But then if you know that photography, like, really started out as just, like, people taking pictures of famous people, and then, like, the whole trajectory is of, like, you know, when you, uh, uh, Gordon Parks of, like first starting to show people who are just regular people on the street and how much that means of like showing people living their regular yeah. life and not being a part of the bourgeoisie yeah. and then suddenly you understand that like taking a picture of that person in that moment yeah. is trying to humanize that person and show that that cultural experience has worth yeah. that's cultural capital that I didn't have and so like yeah you can appreciate that photo without knowing all yeah. that but if you don't know that it's building off of all those things you don't appreciate it in the same way and so those are the kind of like so did I really say something really deep right now? No, but a lot of people act like it, right? right. And so that's what I mean by that I have like the yeah. language to talk intelligently yeah. about like any and again this is just from the PhD. I'm not trying to act like like I guess this could sound like I'm trying to sound conceited, but like that's just like the kind of thinker yeah. that the PhD builds you into. Builds you into. Why do you think emerging voices is so important from an academic perspective when we're talking about these writers that don't have advanced degrees in creative writing? Why is this fellowship? Like, well, what's the value? Because uh, it gives them access access to a community that they don't. Because without that cultural capital, people think as if their creations are don't have worth don't have because they don't know these things yet or because they don't interact with those kind of ideas yet. And so the whole thing is, like, supposedly in this, like, you know, Western liberal democracy, we're trying to build more access, like access to wealth, access to education and things like this. And so it's just another way of letting people in the door. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and I feel like that so many, like, like uh, organizations like this and organizations that are, like, letting more people into the conversation, one, we get new perspectives into the conversation. Two, we expand the conversation that's already happening because we now hear what they're saying. Yeah. Three is that, first off, the whole picture of what was happening was already just too small. And so I think that's the most important thing. And I think that, like, honestly, especially working with somebody like Juby, is what you realize is that, like, people already have meaning-making and know 
most of, and that's the thing that's disappointing about the PhD is a lot of this stuff you kind of intuit already. And so when you like work with somebody like Juby, like you can be like, well, dude, you're totally like writing about XYZ literary theory. And like, you already know this, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, like you already know this, like that's one of the things that's always trips me out is like most of the things of like some of the com most complex ideas, you know, like signify and signifier and like, you know, all kind of post-structuralist ideas. It sounds so complex, but then like really, haven't you always known that, that like words don't have one-on-one -on -one correlation and what they mean and that there's slippage in meaning and that like we should have more like the more the more stories we have in the batch the more close we get to truth yeah you've yeah. always kind of known that but you don't have the language to talk about it i it, totally agree with that yeah no as writers we've yeah. always kind of known that you know and that's like pretty much like I mean, that's like a very reductive way, but that's kind of what post-structuralism mm -hmm. is, right? Mm -hmm. They're like, they're, they're like, you know, our language's relationship to like what it means, there's a, a, a gap that's further than we suspected. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and like, you know, like they, we come up to all these ways that, you know, endless chain of signifiers, all of these different ways to talk about, you know, to go all these Derridian readings, you know, and like, yeah, that's what it kind of comes down to. And you already kind of know that. And yeah. so the dope thing about, like, Emerging Voices to me is, like, somebody doesn't have to go to the institution and they could still be given an opportunity to show that they know that and that they know those kind of things in their way. And then we let them in the door. And then it's just like, bam. Because yeah. that's, that's how I feel like with Juby. I just yeah. feel like, you know, like, we opened a door and Juby was just like, oh, I've been waiting for this. Yeah, and just, just ran through it. Yeah, yeah, you ran know. through, literally. Yeah, you know. Why is one-on-one -on -one mentorship so important for a writer? Going back to Bob um, and Sarah, uh, my, oh, some of my first one-on-one -on -one mentors is that in class, it's one thing to like get praise, but like to just how you and I are right now and to see somebody believing in you yeah. that close, it's just like, and I, and I think the other thing is if there's an investment on the side of your mentor that they're searching too, because I've also heard of the mentorships of like, and I've talked about this before too, about like that you give your poem to somebody and it's just like, you don't even know if it's your poem anymore after that. Yeah. But like with Juby and I and with Sarah and I and Bob and I is that it's this kind of reciprocal experience of that like, I feel like that I learn more about like black masculinity and approaches towards limiting and rendering that in poetry from dealing with Juby than he thinks that I probably learned from him. You know what I yeah. mean? It's like, reciprocal. Really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. times a thousand. And I, and I think that's when mentorship happens. Instead of me just coming up to Juby and just being like, this is the way you write poems. Yeah. It's more like, you know, us together seeing what he's doing and then us figuring out a better way to write poems. Yeah. So talk about the importance of, you know, you weren't chosen just because you're a poet and you were like, around you were chosen off the strength of your work off of you know your relationship to juby's material like how important is it that we hand select mentors based on the mentee like it's not like you're already slotted and whoever we get they're going to get you as a mentor mm -hmm. we talked about this with jordan too because mm -hmm. if jordan had made it in yeah then, he wouldn't have been your mentee because yep. there, the match didn't make sense well i think it's the same i think the big thing about that is like the the peril of trying to find a mentor right mm -hmm. that if there isn't some kind of connection then you don't get the the reciprocity 
process. Yeah. Then, like, if you would have just got me a rando who I had no relationship with their work, then it does really become that I'm just trying to teach them how I would write a poem. Right. But if there's an investment between the subject matter and craft of a, of approach, of approach to craft between mentee and mentor, then it can become this organic experience in which both of them are working towards something. Rather, and then it, rather if it's something to where, like, this person's doing this and I can figure it out. Then I'm dealing with it like a scholar. Because again, doing the USC thing, like I can deal with work like a scholar and that's not very fun with me. Or I can deal with it like a writer. Mm -hmm. And I think if you make the connection content-wise and personally like you, uh, like we were able to do with Juby and I, then you get that kind of writerly dealing with it. While if you would have just given me any poet, I would end up probably being a little bit more sterile, distant, and doing it more academically. Right. Oh, I like that description. Why is it important to have the two writers in the room together? Like, why is the FaceTime important? I, I think the most important thing about the FaceTime is all the things we've been talking about, about the problems of, like, the internet age and about the, the distancing. Is obfuscating and hiding becomes different? Like, we were talking about, like, uh, like if you're doing a podcast on the phone or something. There's something about, like knowing that like I shouldn't talk to him that much about his dad this time mm -hmm. because we just had met and I see his body react mm -hmm. when I say that versus if we were on the phone or versus you know what I mean mm -hmm. it's something about that or it's something about um that I can see that he's tripping a little bit about xyz new opportunity to come and he want to talk about it and I'm just like well fuck these poems yeah. what's good yeah. Because I can see that there's something. That's so, what he needs. Yeah. And, and so, like, you know, Bob and Sarah would do similar things to me, you know. Like, you know, um, with Bob, you know, like, sometimes, like, I'd come and, like, you know, he'd be like, so all these poems are really kind of bad. Is there something happening to you? Yeah. And then we just would just, he, we would just talk about that. He's like, you know, like, I can give you, but these are marked up and, like, literally, like, this isn't, like, how you work, Doug. Yeah. Let's not talk about this. What's happening? You know, and do you think it makes a difference too to hear criticism from someone that's been matched with you like that, like that? Yeah, because then you know it's they're easier not easier to hear. This is shit. What's going on? Yeah, and I mean, especially like being from minoritized um, subjective experiences, I think it's most important because like some old. I mean, no offense to because many old white men, male mentors have been in the world for me. That's what Bob is and David St. John. Uh, Dana Joya, Mark uh, Irwin, um, Chris Forehand, I can go on and on, who have been very influential in my life. But sometimes, like, you think to yourself, like, you know, and even though they're OGs and awesome, you know, you think to yourself when there's somebody outside of your subjective experience, like, especially if it's content-wise and they have a critique, you're like, who the fuck are you? Yeah. Who the fuck are you? Right. Fuck you. Yeah. You know? One of the, one of the um, critiques that Juby had was that he wished that we had, um, if he, we had paired him or he had had conversations with poets that weren't like so bang on with the material mm. um bang on with the material like to me. like that we had more of a range of uh you know cause oh, he, approaches was, yeah craft. it was like he met he talked to Denez, he talked to mm -hmm. carl phillips mm -hmm. he talked to ricky laurentis and he was like you know, I appreciate like how close the attention was paid to like person of color, mm -hmm. uh, subjective experience, yeah. uh, or sexual orientation. Yeah, sexual orientation, and it was he was like, I kind of wish that like you had maybe thrown in a couple, which I, I kind of felt like we did with Chuan Choi and mm -hmm. Derek Brown and Victoria Chang, but definitely always something that we could work on. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? Um, what I can say is that again, going back to Chris Forehand, David St. John, Mark Irwin. Um, those are and, and Bob, 
those are the probably the four horsemen if that was four I hope so of like my um, white male uh, mentorship and I'll say they had just expanded my notion of what a poem could do so I think that, that would actually help because again like you know they're not writing they're not writing that kind of, well kind of Chris's but a lot of them aren't writing just the kind of post-confessional poem so just to kind of expanding because that's part of what USC did for me as well too is expanding the notions of what a poem can do right. so I think that could be helpful in that because like you know um it's just access to different meaning making kind of module right, right. Uh, nodes you know what I mean and so it's just different ways of limiting your truth and I think getting those kind of access because like you know they're bringing a whole different kind of go back to cultural capital yeah. bringing a whole different cultural capital to the game and I might not agree with it but like still having them yeah. talk about my work like expands my notion of what my work could do right and the dog is telling us that we need to finish up. But what we like to do is leave the audience with a writing exercise. Ooh. So if you've been thinking about exercises for your trip, mm -hmm. you have something in mind or like for one of your classes, like mm -hmm. leave them with something. Um, I don't think I'm going to do this on a trip, but one of the ones that I just had a lot of success with, Anna gives a shout out to a local writer because it's him I'm stealing it from, uh, Brandon, Brendan Constantine has this lesson that he calls the opposite game, and he uses a poem by Emily Dickinson, of My Life Stood as a Loaded Gun. So what you do, and you can do this with any poem, one of my big things in my pedagogy is I try to tell students, and the scholarly game does this to you, but this is a fact, uh, all writers out here, at least in my view, um, is that any piece of art or piece of literature that you encounter is a writing exercise. And so all you have to do with the opposite game is take lines from any poem, any poem, open it up. And so um, my life stood as a loaded gun. First word is my. What's the opposite of my? You could either say he, she, you, whatever you want. Life, death, you could say whatever you want, casket, whatever, anything that has a macabre, anything that has definitely things, opposite of that. And so you go and you just do the antonym of each one of the words. And then suddenly you have a poem and then you play with what that says and make that in this, because it might not make sense all the way. But try to be making it make sense as you go along and limb the truth and then make that into a poem. So pretty much work with antonyms through a whole poem, then try to carve it into something that's yours and again the whole kind of point at least the way I imagine this is the whole point of this is that you every piece of literature you see you can interact with it and make a new piece and that also reinforces the idea that we're all standing on each other's shoulders that this again to go back to my song thing is that we're all just singing this song of what it's like to be alive and love shit and lose shit and then fucking die we're all just messing with that. Like, like you know, we're all messing with that. We're all throwing that in there. So a lot of people have been singing this song forever. So if you don't know what to write, just look at one of their songs mm -hmm. and talk to it. And so this is just a way of talking to it, right? You're just doing the opposite. Just doing the opposite. See what happens. Just it's a fun. contrary. Yeah. 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 No truth except in contraries. Blake. William Blake. Back in the day. So yeah. Well, Dougie, you're so smart. Aw. I just like to say quotes from old white people. <laughs> Thank you, you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Man. All right, guys. Bye. Bye. Pet America champions the freedom to write and believes that freedom of expression and literature are inseparable. Visit pen.org to learn more about what we do. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Join us. Be a part of the larger conversation. Support for EV comes from sources both big and small. 
Serious financial support comes from organizations like the Amazon Literary Partnership, California Arts Council, New Balloon and Catapult, Los Angeles County Arts Commission, the Ovation Foundation, Pasadena Literary Alliance, the Rosenthal Family Foundation, and UCLA Extension Writers Program. And let's not forget individuals like Jamie and David Wolf. We appreciate you. To the Emerging Voices themselves, this podcast is in support of everything you do and everything you've accomplished. Congratulations. We celebrate you. Thanks to 2012 EV Johnny Alfie for giving us our theme song, Linen, from his band, Tony and Johnny. And to the members of the Los Angeles literary community who have been showing up for us for more than 20 years, donating their time as mentors, committee members, author evening hosts, and masterclass instructors, I have leaned on each and every one of you for advice, and I appreciate you. You've been there to answer my questions, those of the fellows, as well as the questions of prospective applicants. You've written letters of recommendation, introductions, outreach essays, and blog posts. You've encouraged EVs to read at your events and said yes when we've asked you to read at ours. And to Dave Thomas, everything we know about public speaking, we learned from you. This is all just to say, thanks LA, sincerely.